You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Luke chapter 2, starting off with verse 22. Uh, We're going to read and uh, break it down verse by verse in a moment here. But before we do, I'd mentioned uh, in uh, that quick welcome uh, how celebrating, of course, the birth of Christ and everything that Christmas uh, means, especially for us, uh, even talking to our uh, Brazilian um, IMB missionaries, uh, them mentioning how different culturally just uh, it is in, in churches treating Christmas um, uh, there in comparison. But there's many, many places all across the world where at this time they are heavily persecuted. Um, and I don't know if you guys saw the news with this, but uh, on, on Christmas Day in Nigeria, uh, there were hundreds that were attacked and killed uh, Christians um, on that day. Uh, because again, that is a day that culturally everybody knows, recognizes around the world, uh, supposedly, or at least a recognition of the birth of Christ. And because of that, um, the, <laughs> there's even greater conflict and war. And so uh, church, uh, as we're told uh, in many places of scripture, I think of what we went through just even this summer in the Hebrews chapter 13, that we are to pray those who are persecuted, whether it be imprisoned and those who are even still at risk uh, will be, or even uh, their life and their family's lives. Uh, I want to ask you to pray for those who are persecuted uh, around the world, and specifically the Nigerian Christians, um, as, uh, they, uh, as they kind of receive that setback over that time. And so go ahead, bow your heads, close your eyes, uh, spend some time praying for those persecuted. Their brothers and sisters of ours, uh, commanded by scriptures, uh, to uh, pray, lift them up in, in that way. So go ahead and spend some time praying for Nigerian Christians specifically, for those who are persecuted, especially in this season time. Heavenly Father, we, we do come here today uh, grateful for opportunity to come together as the, the corporate body, uh, united in faith, to be able to hear and receive your word together, uh, to apply, live it out, be on mission with it together, uh, to be able to sing these great songs um, rooted in your, your truth, united in that again together. Uh, but Lord, we want to be intentional while together to also lift up those around the world that are brothers and sisters, and it is a different environment for them at this moment in time. And so, God, we we want to pray and ask that you remind them that you are worth the risk, that you are worthy overall. And as they think about their lives, their future, their families, whether being in prison or, again, daily having to face each morning waking up thinking, as I live for you and choose you and follow you as you've commanded. Um, I risk my life and my family's life and my future. And that they will know, receive and see, believe with all their hearts and you're worth it. I pray, Lord, that you will use 
their blood, and their witness for many to come and know and see the salvation that will make it worth it for those who need you. And so we lift them up, Lord God. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, last week we studied and read, was reminded of the birth of Christ. And this is a, a glimpse of the, the very few only stories of Jesus as child. And one of the first things that happened, some interactions when he was still just a baby, um, as we're going to read, presented at the temple. Um, I love this. this it's kind of cool to just get a glimpse of uh, kind of baby child Jesus, uh, a verse of, of his growth as a child, but then these stories and the interaction with these people as we're going to read about him being presented at the, ta- uh, at the temple. And so it starts off chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, as we're going to see a religious ritual um, and from it a bit of a theology of the poor. Uh, so read with me verse 22. God's word says this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, talking about Mary and Joseph, brought him, talking about baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we're going to pause. There's a lot that's going to unfold right after this, but I want to explain some of this and some significance here. According to the law of Moses, a child was purified through a ritual known as Pidyon Haben. That's what that means in Hebrew. Uh, it means in English, the redemption of the firstborn. This ceremony involved the parents presenting their firstborn son to a Jewish priest and redeeming him with a payment and a presentation. This typically took place when the child was around one month old or on the 31st day after their child's birth, unless it fell on a Sabbath and it would be postponed for a week. This tradition, it came from, you'll read about it in Exodus 13.2. Again, firstborn males consecrated to God. And then later outlined, detailed even more in Leviticus 12.2 through 8. And what we read and see this is I even gave you two Bible, uh, two Old Testament references of why they did this. We see here, now now hear me fully out here, but, but no, we see this ritual as a good thing. Mary and Joseph going to the temple to present Jesus in this way. This was a good thing. Rituals can be a good thing. Although we must be careful with certain routines and rituals, as we'll be reminded in a bit. But as we see here, Jesus' parents doing this, Jesus himself later doing certain rituals in the Jewish custom, um, that it is good. They have their place. It's important for the church to have certain rituals, you to have certain ritual and routines, and your family to have some of these certain traditions if we don't turn them into idols, which we'll get to in a moment here. And so you have here Mary and Joseph bringing in their under two-month-old baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, presenting him to the Lord, following the custom of the law. And what many people miss from this and was pretty much pulled out, explained, uh, referenced, and almost every commentary that I read uh, studying this scripture is what is often missed in verse 24. That when they came... They offered 
a pair of doves or two young pigeons as the sacrifice because they could not afford a lamb. And almost every commentary I read, studied with this scripture said, do not miss this as this is very intentionally placed from Luke, the one who was even like <laughs> financed to have this exhaustive, detailed story of the gospel of Jesus. That pretty much what that means, Jesus's family was poor. It intentionally placed in here. Let that sink in a bit. There's purpose in that being mentioned here. Although we don't want to go too far off, like justifying liberation theology that underemphasizes justification because of it. But we cannot ignore this and the many other scriptures regarding the poor. I found in many years of doing ministry, and I know we have a church that has mostly families, but we as a church and people really want to know and keep what the Bible says about family, but I don't get a lot of questions and people asking, what does the Bible say about the poor? So briefly, as we're here, and because every commentary said, this needs to be recognized. It intentionally says Jesus's family did not have enough money for the lamb. And so therefore, showing that they had to be able to use two young pigeons or a pair of doves as that sacrifice, intentionally showing that he's coming from a poor family, want to briefly share a theology of the poor. Uh, what I go to and love and appreciate was something that Jonathan Edwards wrote in a sermon that later got turned into a kind of small pamphlet book on Christian charity. Uh, Jonathan Edwards concludes that giving and caring for the poor is a crucial, non-optional aspect of living out the gospel. In fact, he says there are two basic arguments uh, in this. One, believing the gospel will move us to give and minister to the poor. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 8 through 9 helps support that. But that also, remembering what Jesus had said in Matthew 25, ministry to the poor is a sign that we believe the gospel. In fact, Matthew 25, 34 through 46, Jesus famously teaches that people will be accepted or condemned by God on the last day, depending on how they treat the hungry, the homeless, the immigrant, the sick, and the imprisoned. Now, of course, that goes along with just fruit as a believer. But I do believe what Edwards had said, ministry to the poor is a sign that we believe the gospel. It is hard yet needed ministry. It's one thing to want to help the poor. It's another thing to go about it wisely. And it's important to go about it wisely. It's extremely easy to become involved um, in this type of ministry and to make things worse rather than better. Uh, one of the main reasons this happens so often, I believe, is because there's two unbiblical kind of ideologies that reign in our culture today with this. Um, I think people who are maybe more on the conservative side in general see poverty as caused by nothing but personal irresponsibility. And then you have people who may be more left-leaning liberal side that in general will see poverty as caused by unjust social systems, poor individuals that have no ability to escape them. And it's exclusively only that's the reason why they are poor. And I believe where we should fall is more of a balance in such ways. In fact, one, one who has written extensively, of course, had a, uh, a large ministry uh, with most of his ministry being in New York City. 
um, that wrote extensively on this uh, as a church that did this was Tim Keller. And he wrote a, a book called uh, uh, Justice and Mercy. And uh, specifically talking about uh, ministry to the poor, he says this, the Bible moves back and forth in calling ministry to the poor, sometimes justice and sometimes service or ministry. Uh, perhaps the most famous biblical appeal to help the poor is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I referenced earlier, in which this aid is called mercy, but elsewhere sharing food, shelter, other basic resources with those who have fewer of them is called doing justice. To fail to share is considered not simply a failure to be compassionate, but it is also a failure to be fair. Uh, to a certain degree, what he's saying is this is a justice issue as well. Uh, we talked a bit about that in Imago Day when we had that series a few years ago. Uh, and church, let me remind you, it's part of the reason why even us as a church, um, half of what you give to uh, with your offering and tithes uh, is ministries that actually in Lexington helps that we trust and believe doing a good work for those who are homeless and to the poor. Again, it's part of the reason why we do believe that there needs to be a balance here and with that, because both of you ironically become self-righteous that we must do something that at the same time, like Jesus has mentioned, they're all, you're always going to have the poor. You, you can't do everything, but as part of the Christian fruit that should come out and is displayed is having such a heart as it is a justice issue. And that, that was literally Jesus's family. So moving on in the text, next we see Simeon at here, the presentation in the temple. And we hear his prophecy of true salvation out of all places in the temple. Read with me verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law. Uh, before we explain a little bit about Simeon and this whole, this whole story right here. Um, know where it's taking place. Them being in the temple. Remember the temple at this time is the dwelling place for God. This here is the center of worship and sacrifice needed for, at their time, temporary forgiveness of sin. It united the tribes of Israel for communal worship. It was the place for intercession that only the priests could perform. It was, it was where the ark that represented the covenant that God made with his people uh, was placed. And even its architecture had deep symbolism. And in the middle of the temple, as Mary and Joseph, as good Jews, are presenting, doing the purification for, this, for their child here, um, all of a sudden, this guy, and yes, he did have a bit of a reputation, as it says in verse 25, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which means the Messiah to comfort and redeem, restore Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon them. Whether they knew all those things about him, we don't know. All we know is that in the middle of this ceremony, um, this guy just walks in, some potentially random stranger rolls up in the temple, middle of the purification ceremony, takes the baby in his arms and starts talking about how the Lord can take him now. Okay. Like I think about this, like modern day, like we're doing a child dedication 
And like, if that ever happened, like that would not fly. Okay. <laughs> like, and I'm kind of thinking like Mary and Joseph are just rolling with it right now. I mean, they saw angel Gabriel, these shepherds coming out of nowhere. They're like, all right, we know this is our life right now. So like, we're just rolling with it. That would not fly with you guys. Okay. Abraham, uh, his wife, I come up here, they're, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be, if some random guy's coming up and they're like, Hey, let me take this baby. It's like, I can go see the Lord right now that I have that. Like people who are packing, watch out. Right. Like, so this is just, this is, this is just what, what God's using and doing. And, and, and after everything they've been through. And so this is what he says. Look at verse 28. He took him up in his arms, blessed God and said, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What is this prayer, this prophecy made by Simeon? First, starting with verse 29, as I'd mentioned, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And so he is sharing here, God made some type of prophecy or promise to him that he will see the Messiah Savior before he passes. And he knows somehow, some way, this two-month-old baby, under two-month-old baby is him. And so he's saying in verse 29, God, you have fulfilled your promise. I can go now. As he says in verse 30, because I'm looking at this baby, my eyes have seen, and he represents what is needed in salvation. My eyes have seen who will bring me salvation, who will bring everyone salvation. Because we know Jesus, and it's on Christ alone that brings salvation. I uh, had a conversation at our staff meeting a few weeks ago uh, with Pastor Joey, where he was sharing, and I appreciate what he had said about how important it is as parents uh, with children that have made some type of profession of faith for them to know how important it is that they are walking with Christ and how important how he shares. He said, I got this from Paul Washer, uh, which I appreciate and respect, but, but Paul Washer will, will emphasize to the kids in his church and kids from his family how important it is not for you just to say, hey, I became a Christian this day, or I was baptized this day, but are you walking in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? And what he's trying to emphasize there is the fruit, right? What we know and see throughout scripture, the fruit. And while I fully agree, and as important as that is, we also cannot underemphasize what is being said here. There is a moment in time where one passes from death to life in receiving salvation. That it is Jesus Christ who does both, and both are important, as walking reveals if they truly did receive salvation in the first place. And only Jesus, God, knows that. But both needs to happen. You don't get one without the other. And it is only through Jesus Christ, as Simeon says here, prays and prophesies, that will bring salvation through Jesus Christ. He is the one who justifies. He's the one who regenerates. He's the one that sanctifies and eventually glorifies, as Simeon knew and says here, this baby 
is the Savior. And not just for in the middle of the Jews. I mean, I mean I'm sorry, in the middle of the temple with the Jews, he says this. Look at verse 31. He says, not only in salvation for us, but that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is important as it includes here in the middle of the Jewish temple that God will reveal himself as light to those outside of the Jews. As we saw glimpses of that, specific stories of that leading up to here, Rahab, for example, and others. But now we know through the gospel what this baby represents and will give in salvation. The door will be open for all and will spread, have opportunity to come in Christ. Not only that, but as he concludes in the end of verse 32, and for glory to your people, God's chosen in Israel. And then verse 33, Joseph and Mary's response, similar to their experience with the shepherds and their experience with the angel Gabriel. They marveled at what Simeon said. And it says they were blessed by this. But this is the first time that they didn't just marvel and was blessed by everything that so far gives hope. This is the Messiah. This is the king. This is salvation. But look what Simeon says after. This is the first time, first kind of prophecy up to this point that there's a little bit of negative. Look what it says. They marveled and they were blessed. But then Simeon said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is now the first prophecy that reveals a bit more hardship and trials rather than just hope. First, Simeon says and prays that this child will bring the fall and rise of many in Israel. This, of course, will be true for Israel, as we know and see in this book. This will be true for many other people at this time. This will be true throughout history. And this is also true with us individually in the salvation that is offered. We cannot receive Christ on the rise, per se. He doesn't get added on with our own greatness and accomplishments. It doesn't mean you have to lose everything, but you have to be willing to say and act on losing everything to follow him. And in your own heart and soul, you must recognize you are nothing as a sinner and need Jesus as that Savior, that he is truly everything and wants to give you everything that matters most eternally, which gives way to a true rise, not by the world's standards. In fact, I love what C.H. Spurgeon says about that, the individual salvation part. He said this, whenever Christ comes to a man, there is a fall first and a rising again afterward. You never knew the Lord aright if he did not give you a fall first. He pulls us down from our pride and self-sufficiency, and then he lifts us up to a position of eternal safety. This child will bring the fall and rise of many in Israel, many in the world, and to those in individual salvation. And then he prays, prophesies, saying, many will oppose this child. 
And as it says, he specifically is talking to Mary here. I can't but help to wonder if Mary remembers this when she saw her son being falsely accused, when she saw her son and what unfolds in the passion of Christ and ultimately killed for being the son of God. As she witnessed that, I can't but help to wonder if she remembers Simeon's prophecy and words that many will oppose this child. And then these next two things that he says is so important, so important in context of where it's taking place. He says, read at the end of verse 34 and 35, he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I love this right here because in the middle of the temple, in the middle of this ritual, Simeon prays, prophesies, announces that this child and the salvation that he offers, it's going to get to the heart, to the soul. Because as I'm reminded here in these words, as good and as important certain traditions and rituals are, we also know that all traditions and rituals are worthless if they do not address issues and idols of the heart. This includes what's going on in the temple at that time. This includes our baby dedications. I mean, honestly, this includes when we do liturgy as a part of our corporate worship service. This includes certain devotion to certain styles of worship. This includes Lord's Supper, which Jesus commanded us to do and we're going to continue to do. And as I've studied it, know and have increasingly grown over the years recognizing its importance. But if it is just words and even right words that are repeated and not penetrating the heart, if there isn't confession and repentance, recognition, a soberness and a gratitude for what is being displayed and represented. It is worthless. And what Simeon is saying here, this prophecy and prayer, is that Jesus breaks down, reveals such idols, gets to the heart and soul, and what he will bring in the gospel and salvation. And there's only Jesus in the gospel that does that. And I must ask as we're here, what may he be revealing in your heart right now as well? And remember, when Jesus brings the salvation that is being talked about here, true salvation, once and for all, and that sacrifice will be made in the resurrection and, and offering it through repentance and saving faith. Remember, he makes you the new temple, not where this prophecy took place. You are the temple of God now. Where God abides is in you through the Holy Spirit. They needed this temple at that time for temporary forgiveness. And it was only for the Jews. But Jesus changed all that, and that was the plan in the beginning. And now the next person mentioned in this text, who's often missed in comparison to Simeon here, but just as important, is a woman who is highlighted here in a book that is known, the gospel that is known for both speaking about women and the oppressed. Read with me about Anna, the prophetess, prayer warrior, and a public witness of Jesus. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel 
of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love this. First, it's mentioned that she's a prophetess, which means a vessel for revelation from God. Luke later mentions in Acts that the daughters of Philip were prophetesses. The Apostle Paul mentions women as a prophetess as well in 1 Corinthians. We see in the Old Testament women like Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, and Deborah as prophetesses. And so we see this in Scripture. I know people question and wonder when we use the word prophecy, prophet, prophet, prophetess, uh, what that exactly means. Uh, I know there are those who in their biblical worldview and interpret Scripture where somebody who, whether it's gift of prophet or as we see prophet here in today's day and age, they are going to speak truth from Scripture and what may be gray, more black and white truth from Scripture. And then there are those who interpret that as the gift or for today, one who is going to foretell certain things. God's going to reveal to them and they're going to foretell certain things. I believe both worldviews can be correct. Um, and, and this, again, we know just like Old Testament, just like other times that Luke had mentioned them, she is one that whether it was speaking truth or be able to foretell certain things, we don't have a glimpse of what she'd be foretelling. But as long as it is in the boundaries of Scripture, I believe that is a good interpretation, a good view. So whether it is a word from the Lord or supposed prophecy, our response should be the same. Compare what is said to the Word of God. If it contradicts the Bible, throw it out. If it agrees with the Bible, pray for wisdom and discernment on how to apply that message. But this woman, as it says, is a prophetess, and as we see in verses 37 and 38, a prayer warrior. Do the math a little bit with this. It says she was advanced in years, lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Remember, at this time and age, she probably got married between 13 to 15 years old, 13 to 16 years old. So that means she got married around that time. She would have lost her husband, become a widow in early 20s. And now she's advanced and aged, as it says here, that she, that, uh, she was 84 and as a widow until she was 84. So that puts the math about 60-something years probably that this devout woman of God would fast and pray and go to the temple. I love this right here. Because I read this and I can't but help to remember, I was talking to my mom about this yesterday. When I first became a Christian in high school, my memories of the older women of the church was not the stereotypes that I've heard as of lately. It's not the people that's holding on to their golden calves. But it was the women that was praying on their knees for the needs of the families in the church. And I love, as I see here, a woman that, again, get this, she's been a widow for 60-something years, fasting and praying daily, going to the temple, enduring in that, giving to the Lord what is the Lord's. 
And I can't but help to think, and not just think, pray and ask you to pray, that we will have many, many, both women and men in this church here like this. Church, remember, what we do now is not just for tomorrow. What we do now is for generations. And again, that's where I pray and hope we're going to have these type of men and women of God that's going to be lifting up you, I. And it says here, she was not just this prayer warrior in such ways. She became a public witness of Jesus. Look at verse 38. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God after what just took place. The announcement, again, prophecy and prayer, Jesus is that Savior. Gentiles, everyone. And it says here, she gave thanks. And then she became that public witness because the best witness comes out of thanks, right? This is why new Christians are on fire for the Lord. They're so thankful in the beginning. And then the rest of us become like the, the Kermuggins, right? <laughs> and they're on fire because they're freshly recognizing how he's a savior for our sin. And it's why God gives us reminders for repentance, renewal, and reformation to be thankful again and to do what she does. Look what it says she does. To speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And then in conclusion, we read the last two verses. We see Jesus as a child and a little bit, a little bit of uh, what that means, what that looks like in comparison to other scripture of what ministry to children can look like. Verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned in Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. As mentioned, this right here is the only verse in all of the Gospels that shows Jesus is a growing child. Only in Luke here is Jesus' physical and spiritual growth recognized as a child. And let me remind you what was said about John the Baptist as a growing child is there are similarities. Chapter 1, verse 66 in Luke, the hand of the Lord was on him. And then verse 80, the child grew, talking about John the Baptist again, and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Uh, one similar thing there is the groom became strong. That was the same here as John the Baptist, not mentioned what we'll see in next week in teen years, because teens were mostly treated as adults, but it's important we know and see in recognition as a child that they grow and become strong. This means that Jesus physically grew in strength to become more independent, to endure and face hard things in life. Now, as this happened and Jesus was a child that physically grew in these ways, was he perfect? Yes, he was the son of God. Yes, he was perfect. But I heard one preacher ask and compare when, when studying this passage, like if Jesus played sports, like he played baseball, did he hit a home run every single time? And if that is the case, like, can you imagine playing with this guy? Like, oh, Jesus on that team, I'm not playing. All right? you know, like, he's always first picked. And like, if you're playing against him, you quit right away. All right? And if he didn't, does that mean he's not perfect anymore? Like is a strikeout sin? I don't believe it's sin, but it's Jesus. You know, I don't have all the questions. That's for you guys to discuss in your community groups when they start back in two weeks. But 
He grew in strength, and he was a child. You guys are around children. You're sitting by them right now. They're not going to be perfect per se when it comes to sin, but they're going to grow and learn as they do at that age in wisdom and stature. And so Jesus experienced that, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. It says he grew and became strong in those ways. And it says filled with wisdom. This would be in alignment with what we know about wisdom in the rest of Scripture. The perception of God's will, the fear of God, biblical understanding. And the last of all, it says the end of verse 40, the favor of God was upon him. Which in comparison to us, in which I'm about to do, is kind of unfair here to compare Jesus having God's favor from the very beginning. Not just this beginning in childhood or with Christmas, but instead we know he had the favor of the Lord for eternity as a member of the Trinity. And of course, this continued in his incarnation as he's about to fulfill the salvation plan in order for us to receive this for ourselves. And we have greater opportunity to share this at a child's age. And so to conclude, three things I want to share with you to guide and disciple our kids toward as we get a glimpse, one verse of Jesus as a child. And guess what? It's not just in the one verse about Jesus. It's in the scriptures. Three things we want to guide and disciple our kids toward as displayed by Jesus in verse 40. And here are the three things. I'll briefly explain them. One, strength and courage. Two, wisdom and understanding. Three, hands of the Lord in favor. And I'll explain that because like I said, it's a little different with Jesus than what we can be able to give to our kids. First, regarding strength and courage. There's a reason why in, um, in uh, uh, Solomon's final words to his son in 1 Kings 2, 2 through 3, he says, be strong and show yourself a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. There's a reason why in 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 8, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power of love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. There's a reason why for us as parents, we want to instill a certain strength and courage led by the spirit for them to go out, be independent and live the tough challenges of life. Um, I want to read from you uh, Andy Crouch in a book called The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Place. Although a great, great book when it comes to what is entitled there, uh, he speaks heavily, has an entire chapter on the importance of instilling how technology will take away from parenting children in courage and strength. And he talks about both the wisdom and the courage and strength. But let me just read what he says about the courage and strength here. He says, if all we needed were wisdom, that would be challenge enough. But it is not all we need because we need not just to understand our place in the world. Think about your child here. And the faith will wait to proceed. We also need the conviction and character to act. And this is what courage is about. The older word for this is virtue, a word that has dwindled in our common language into something like niceness or worse, a kind of goody-goody avoidance of bad behavior. But we can't afford to give up the word's older and deeper meaning, which is the habits of character that allow us to act courageously in the face of difficulty. Life is difficult. In fact, if you do life properly with wisdom, life gets more difficult as you go. 
eventually it gets difficult for everyone, especially for the ones who try to avoid difficulty. And even though it's incredibly hard simply to know what we should do, it's even harder to actually act on what we know we should do. Because, get this, almost all the time, the most faithful, the most loving, and the wisest thing to do is scary, hard, and painful, even in some ways dangerous. It is why us as parents are to do our best to instill, again, a biblical courage and strength. In fact, what I've learned over the years, some examples that God wants to use you as parents or us as a church in discipling them toward courage and mission would be these four things on the screen you see right here. It's, it's, it's important for us to help instill integrity and character so that our kids can stand up for what is right and good. It's important to help instill discipline and self-control because as I had just read, to grow, you must do the hard things. And that will take a certain amount of discipline and self-control and what we're teaching them now. That will take... That will mean them taking godly risks and not being afraid to fail. Because as they grow in that and within that, there's recognition of grace and continued faith. And of course, as we instill that, it shows how they, we, they need to be missional, sharing the gospel of Christ with evangelism and the persecution that comes with that. And with that. Second, we see here, wisdom and understanding. In all my years in student ministries, way before ever becoming a parent myself, I recognized the God-given role that parents had in giving their children understanding and wisdom and doing my best and continuing to do it here and appreciating people like Connor and our kids' leaders to point them back to you in the same way. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, that's kind of scary because I'm not wise. <laughs> I'm not equipped for that. I'd even ask for that. And I feel the same way often. You know how we often say God equips who he calls for those called to ministry? Well, parents recognize this. You were called by God to parent that child. If you have them, whether it was out of wedlock, unplanned, or intentionally prayed and planned for, God has called you to it. I could say with all the confidence of the Lord, if you have kids, God has called you to be their parent and the main discipler, and he's equipped you within that calling and discipling. And you don't have to be super smart and super wise. You can rest in knowing he's going to help you. He's going to use you in that calling for such wisdom when you love the Lord yourself and you do have a community here that will help you. Some examples that God wants to use you in discipling them toward wisdom and understanding. And again, as a church, what we want to do with kids Four things real quick. Biblical worldview and spiritual warfare. It is during that formation of that time that we need to teach them not only what the Bible says, but viewing the world according to Scripture and the worldview from it, and that they will face spiritual warfare. Under this topic of wisdom and understanding, the importance of teaching them the importance of work and the importance of rest or Sabbath over what the world is going to try to teach them in idolatry and apathy. Wisdom and understanding when it comes to these important topics in their life, where their identity is, their purpose in life, 
and mission in Jesus. It is one thing I am so grateful for our student minister, Connor, when it comes to the teen years, him knowing the importance and being intentional and showing at that age both purpose and identity in Christ in comparison to the world. And he's very intentional in that with that. Speaks of that often. And then, of course, last, the importance and wisdom and understanding of creating over consuming. Last of all, the hand of the Lord in favor. Now, unlike Jesus, for us, this is only possible through the gospel. In fact, as parents, we're unable to guide them in wisdom and understanding or help instill strength and courage without this one right here in the gospel. The only way we can receive God's favor and hand and the only way we can help disciple them in courage and wisdom with grace and the Spirit's help is in recognition of receiving and then living out what Jesus becomes in salvation. What was prophesied from Simeon. That our sin that separates us from God is taken care of when Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. Both spiritual and physical death was defeated as he did that for us and to the glory of God, but rose from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and then offering it to us. And when we repent and have saving faith in him, and not only in receiving Christ through true saving faith with that, but now living and walking in that and sharing that and being reminded of that and being thankful for that as this overflows in those different areas. As we're able to understand God's word because the spirit within us be able to live for him, obedient to him, follow him. And I'll conclude with this great reminder. There is great grace along with the assurance that God has equipped us to do this in spite of our weakness and sins. Great, great grace. Parents know there's grace rooted in the gospel in your parenting and discipleship. Faithfulness goes a long way and you may never know the fruit of faithfulness in these areas but let me encourage you just to take one step at a time. It starts with prayer and little steps of understanding and courage yourself. Your role alone puts you in a place where God wants to use you in discipling your kids toward this. And so I encourage you, love Jesus, live for him, and some of these things will happen as an overflow. Yes, you will need to be intentional about some things, but there is much grace in these areas and just your heart right now to trust him with this, taking those steps to be more faithful as disciples, to help instill that wisdom, that understanding, to help them grow in strength and courage in that way, to give them the Jesus of the gospel. It goes a long way. It does. And again, you have a church that thinks about these things as ministries, community groups, that's going to be intentional with this and help you as well. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. God, as we prayed for our brothers and sisters in other countries, knowing that not only in, in persecution what they face, but even the lack of resources that they may have to be able to hear, receive, and apply it. God, I pray, Lord, that whatever we need to apply when it comes to the prayer and prophecy of Simeon, from a reminder that you and you alone bring that salvation, 
the importance of how you get to our heart to help uproot idols, speak in the most important issues over the rituals and routines. Or Lord, what an example Anna was as that prayer warrior giving thanks and being that public witness of you. And Lord, how important it is for us as a church and then even as parents to just do our best in faithfulness to instill biblical strength and courage as our children will be shot out as those arrows facing the hardest things in life. To help impart wisdom and understanding that they need now, near future and for future coming from and within you. And Lord, to receive your favor that only comes by being adopted into your family and receiving the gospel and living for you with it. God, we ask that you help us. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it, but out of your grace, that you help us do what we need to do for generational legacy of the gospel to be passed down. And God, as we continue to give this time, again, receive you with open arms, open hearts, open hands. Let us now sing and worship you out of thanks for what you've given us and where you're guiding us. We pray this in your name, Jesus.